First, a welcome to you all. And second, to introduce myself. My name is Professor Michael Cox of the International Relations Department here at the LSE and co-director of Ideas with my old partner in crime, Ordani Westad, who's sitting in the front row here. It is Ideas, of course, which is hosting this lecture by Ram Guha tonight. <coughs> I hope Ram doesn't mind, but there are a couple of things I would like to announce uh, before uh, bringing on the Rolling Stones. That's you, Ram, by the way, just, <laughs> just in case. Uh, one uh, concerns his successor. Now, this seems very rude. I was thinking about how to introduce the end of the Ram Guha era. And I hope Ram does not take offense. I'm sure he won't. Uh, he has not been fired. Uh, but we have to plan ahead, and we are delighted, um, the two directors, uh, to announce that his successor uh, to this position will be the historian and journalist uh, Anne uh, Applebaum, uh, winner of the 2004 Pulitzer Prize for her book, Gulag History. She takes up her position in October, and we have a very nice statement from Anne herself, which I will read out. I'm delighted to be given this wonderful opportunity to take up the position that Ram now holds, to meet and work with the students and faculty from the LSE, one of the few truly global institutions. Ram, don't worry, we still need you. Uh, the second announcement, if I might uh, just indulge, more directly reflects on ideas itself. Uh, Arnie Westad and I uh, set up ideas a few years back uh, with a series of goals, one being to become a place uh, where two worlds uh, might meet, the policy world and the academic world. I suppose to become a think tank uh, within LSE, uh, one of its many. As you know, we all abhor league tables, <clears throat> except when we are near the top of them. <laughs> so I'm very delighted to announce uh, that in a recently published worldwide ranking of all think tanks, Ideas was ranked fourth amongst all university-based think tanks and 20th in what was nicely known as Western Europe. Uh, many people to thank, but in particular I'd like to thank here to see personally and on behalf of Arnie Westad all of the Ideas team who have made this success possible. So thank you to the team. Could I also say well done to P Patrick, Professor Patrick Dunleavy, who heads up another successful think tank here at the LSE, the Public Policy Group, who also came forth. We're quite annoyed, but well done, Patrick. <laughs> A double for the school. Now at last, on to our speaker for this evening, uh, Ramachandra Guha. One of the world's foremost historians, Ram has graced LSE uh, this academic year as Philippe Romand Chair. A true Renaissance man, he has written brilliantly over the years on Indian history, the environment, Gandhi, and of course, possibly most importantly of all, cricket. <laughs> he is here tonight to give his third lecture in a series of four on <coughs> India. Before, in his first two, he looked backwards. Tonight, he thinks about the present and the future and will talk in this LSE Ideas public lecture, a provocative title, if ever there were one, 10 Reasons Why India Will Not and Should Not Become a Superpower. 
Dr. Ramachandra Guha, we look forward to what you have to say. Thank you, Mick, for those gracious words of introduction. Thank you all for coming here. Today is 63rd Republic Day for my country. On the 26th of January 1950, we Indians were finally permitted not to sing God Save the Queen. <laughs> uh, but that was not the only significance of that day. Uh, it was a day <coughs> on which a society that was deeply hierarchical, shot through with divisions of caste, class, and gender, uh, <coughs> a population that was largely illiterate, committed itself through its leaders to building a democratic, plural, and egalitarian society. And the significance of that day in the history of the LSE uh, should also be noted, though it seldom is. The Indian Constitution was drafted by a constituent assembly of 240 representative members from all over India. Uh, which took three years to draft the constitution. Uh, by contrast, another great Asian country that was just then beginning its democratic journey, Japan, drafted its constitution in nine days. <laughs> uh, with this significant difference, uh, that the Japanese constitution was drafted by Americans and the Indian constitution by Indians. Uh, and Indians being notoriously disputatious, as you'll soon find out, it took us three and a half years to draft the constitution. And overseeing that process, and this is where the LSE comes in, overseeing that process was one of, and I say this uh, uh, advisedly, one of the greatest ever products of the London School of Economics and Political Science. A man called B.R. Ambedkar, who was born in 1892 in an untouchable household in Western India, absolutely at the bottom of the caste system, he was the 13th and last child of a sepoy in the Indian Army, and by dint of his courage, intelligence, bravery, and much else, uh, took a degree from the University of Bombay, uh, a further degree and a PhD from Columbia University, and then a DSc in Economics from the London School of Economics. And he was chairman of the drafting committee of the Indian Constitution. <coughs> uh, in his capacity as law minister, he supervised it with sagacity and skill. Uh, he made some stirring speeches on the meanings of democracy in a poor, divided, hierarchical society. Some of those speeches are accepted in an anthology edited by me, which is on sale outside. And I strongly recommend it, not only for Ambedkar, but also because in that <coughs> book you would get uh, the writings of several generations of Indian social reformers and thinkers who helped lay the basis of Indian democracy. But let me move a little further up the road from the LSE to University College London, if I'm, if I'm allowed to do so. Since I'm soon leaving this chair, I think I'm allowed to be a little disloyal, uh, perhaps. And, and I moved to the University College London because uh, a man who taught there wrote what, in my view, and you can already see I'm not shy of passing judgments, who wrote, in my view, 
the most insightful things ever written about the Indian political experiment. And uh, fortunately for me, these were expressed in a series of letters that have not been published, which I discovered in the National Library of Scotland. This man was called J.B.S. Haldane. He was one of the 20th century's greatest biologists. He was a professor in University College London at the height of his career when, in 1956, he decided to chuck it all up and migrate to India and take a job there. Now, this is sort of unprecedented even now. You know of ambitious, young, gifted scientists making a journey from east to west, but an established scientist making a journey from west to east. And Holden was asked at various times why he moved to India. And he gave different answers. On one occasion, he said uh, that the Suez misadventure had uh, you know, made him disenchanted with Western imperialism, and he wanted to move to a newly independent country. On another occasion, he said, also accurately, <coughs> that Jawaharlal Nehru was a rather more attractive political leader than Anthony Eden. <laughs> and on a third occasion, he said, when asked why he had left this comfortable job at University College London for an uncertain future in a poor, struggling country, he said, 60 years in socks was enough. <laughs> so Holden moves to India in 1956. <laughs> Four years later, he is the subject of a profile in an American science magazine. And in that profile, <laughs> this Scottish polymath turned Indian radical was called a citizen of the world. Now, most of us would see it as a compliment if you're called a citizen of the world. Now, of course, um, in academics, the kind of trade I am in, being a citizen of the world means uh, you think you're at home everywhere and you're told you're at home nowhere. And you're mostly at home uh, on a transcontinental flight, as it happens. Uh, uh, but most of us would be happy to be described as not being parochial, not being uh, narrow, xenophobic, but as being citizens of the world. Now, Haldane was angry. He wrote to this American science writer. He said, no doubt, you call me a citizen of the world. No doubt, I am in some sense a citizen of the world. But I believe with Thomas Jefferson that one of the chief duties of a citizen is to be a nuisance to the government of his state. As there is no world state, I cannot do this. On the other hand, I can be, and am, a nuisance to the government of India, which has the merit of permitting a good deal of criticism, although it reacts to it rather slowly. <laughs> now, uh, this sort of resonates with me, because I am a columnist in the Indian newspapers, and I regularly write things that are not very complimentary about the Indian, the Indian government, and the Indian government permits me to say whatever I want, to criticize whichever politician or political party is in power, although it reacts to it, if at all, rather slowly. <laughs> so then Haldane goes on, and this is the critical part. He says, I also happen to be proud of being a citizen of India, which is a lot more diverse than Europe, let alone the USA, USSR, or China, and thus a better model for a possible world organization. It may, of course, break up, but it is a wonderful experiment. So I want to be labeled a citizen of India. So that's Haldane in 1960, <coughs> explaining why he's not a world citizen, but a citizen of India. Two years later, <coughs> uh, he wrote an article 
in which he described India as, I quote, the closest approximation to the free world. <laughs> now we are talking uh, at the height of the Cold War, when the free world, always F capital W capital meant, uh, essentially the United States of America, loyally supported or followed or whatever you may call it by the United Kingdom, uh, then as now. Uh, <laughs> and here is Holday in saying that India is the closest approximation to the free world. So a friend of his, who was a professor of biology at the University of California at Berkeley, wrote him a strong letter of objection. He said, he told Holden, you say India is the closest approximation to the free world. But my experience, based on several trips to the country, is that India <coughs> has its fair share of scoundrels and a tremendous amount of poor, unthinking, and disgustingly subservient individuals who are not attractive. To this, Haldane replied, perhaps one is freer to be a scoundrel in India than elsewhere. <laughs> and then he carries on, the disgusting subservience of the others has its limits. The people of Calcutta riot, upset trams, and refused to obey police regulations in a manner which would have delighted Jefferson. I don't think their activities are very efficient. But that is not the question at issue. Now, these quotes from Holden, I think, capture better than anything a mere uh, academic historian like me can, what is distinctive about the Indian political experiment. India is the most recklessly ambitious as well as ambitiously reckless political experiment in human history. It is both an unnatural nation and an unlikely democracy. Never before were people so divided and diverse constituted as a single country. Never before was the franchise granted to a largely illiterate and poor citizenry. <clears throat> and because it was an unnatural nation and an unlikely democracy, it was not expected to succeed. From the 1930s till the 1990s, the, Indian, the idea of an independent democratic India was completely all consistently written off by Western observers, most eloquently by Winston Churchill uh, in a series of speeches he made in the 1930s, uh, going on to the, the war when absolutely his darkest mo and most uh, terrible moments were his policies towards India because he believed the Indians were not capable of ruling themselves. But even Westerners sympathetic to Indian ideas, aspirations, someone like Aldous Huxley, who <coughs> uh, was greatly influenced by Indian literature, philosophy, and music, and visits India in 1961, comes away profoundly depressed, writes to his brother, the biologist Julian, saying, there is no escape from the vice of overpopulation, food scarcity, violence, and India will come under the rule of the army. This is uh, <coughs> Aldous Huxley in 1961. Six years later, the correspondent of the London Times <coughs> uh, writes a report on what's going to be India's fourth general election. And he says in his reports, the experiment of building a democratic India has failed. The army will soon take over. And what we are witnessing now is the fourth and surely last general election. So <clears throat> there were a series of prophecies of doom, which embarrassed Indians, which hurt them, which uh, made them angry. And yet they have stopped coming. When they stopped coming, 
is something which a future historian will have to date. Uh, they were coming as late as 1992, after a demolition of a mosque in Ayodhya in northern India, which led to a wave of Hindu-Muslim writing. But they stopped coming probably about 97, 98. And in the last decade, different tune, tunes are being sung. Indians are being told, most recently, uh, in a talk I heard earlier this afternoon across the road at King's College by the distinguished British Foreign Secretary William Hague, who is one of the uh, many people who has been telling Indians that you're a rising superpower. You're not going down the tube, but you're a rising superpower. And that the 21st century is the Asian century, the century of India and China, just as <coughs> the last century was the American century and the century before that. Uh, the, the century of, of the British. <coughs> now, I'm not speaking for China, but <laughs> I'm speaking for what I see as India's uh, ambitions or desires or aspirations to be a superpower. Now, why are these predictions being made? Why is there the anticipation that India would be a new superpower? Because of two solid, tangible successes. The first success is political. Despite the Winston Churchills and the Aldous Huxleys and the Times correspondent, we are still united and we are still democratic. While other countries in our neighborhood practice the election of generals, we practice gender elections. <laughs> We've had 15 of them successfully. And if you think that, well, I, some of the things I'm going to say a little later on may make you stop clapping, but I'm, thank you for this. Thank you for this. Thank you for this. Grab it while it's there. Huh? Grab it while it's there. Thank you. Thank you for this. So this is one reason that India has proved that you can be poor, diverse, illiterate, and yet be democratic. And in fact, the interesting thing about Indian elections is that the poor and the disenfranchised vote in larger numbers, unlike in the West or unlike in countries like the US, for example, where African-Americans generally, except in special circumstances, don't turn out to vote. After the demolition of the mosque in 1992, which I referred to, and the riots in which Muslims suffered, in every succeeding elections, Muslims voted in higher numbers because they wanted, as a disenfranchised minority, likewise with the untouchables and the tribals, they wanted to assert themselves to the democratic system. So that's one aspect of the Indian success, political. But even more important from the point of view of the talk of superpowerdom super is the economic success. Through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, the Indian economy grew. Never less than 2%, never more than 3%. <laughs> and an esteemed professor of mine at the Delhi School of Economics, Professor Rajkrishna, termed this the Hindu rate of growth. <laughs> <laughs> However, in the last decade, the Indian economy has grown spectacularly at 6, 8, 9, 10% consistently over the last 14, 16, 18 years. And they, apart from this aggregate, growth in the economy, there have been some spectacular surges in specific sectors such as software. So that my hometown, Bangalore, has been invoked with alarm in several successive US presidential elections, where candidates of either party have warned their constituents that they're going to be Bangalore. So you have now, because of India's political success and economic success, this talk of superstardom. Those earlier predictions of doom and gloom were met with anger. These current anticipations are gleefully welcomed by Indians, or some certain kinds of Indians, most middle class Indians, 
but especially by three kinds of Indians, in my view. Firstly, the politicians. <laughs> Secondly, the industrialists. And thirdly, and this may be, uh, may be most peculiar, but I, you know, there's a reason for it. Thirdly, the newspaper editors. <laughs> because they hope that come World Economic Forum time at Davos, which I think is happening sometime now, uh, instead of the editor of the New York Times, the editor of XYZ Express in Delhi will be inaugurating the session on the media. So it's welcomed by politicians, industrialists, and newspaper editors who think that if this happens, they will come to replace the President of the United States, Bill Gates, and the editor of the United New York Times, respectively, as the three most important people in the world in their respective spheres. But it's also widely shared by the middle class and often by the expatriate diasporic middle class. Now, these are things uh, I'm not going to speculate on various reasons. It's also a largely male aspiration. Super, Indian superstardom. I don't know about American and British and Chinese superstardom. But it's largely male. It's often diasporic. It's often centered in Delhi and Bombay. Now, these are things we can which require a separate sociological discussion. But my task today is to prick that balloon, is to suggest to you <coughs> that those hopes and anticipations are misplaced, hence India will not be a superpower, and are even foolish, hence India should not be a superpower. Today, the Republic of India, 62 years after it was founded, faces 10 serious challenges. And I'm going to list them for you, these 10 challenges, I'm going to list for you, and I'll give a brief explanation of each one of these challenges and their significance. Unfortunately, it will have to be in capsule form. <coughs> the first challenge, and this is not necessarily in order of importance, by the way. They're all more or less at the same level of significance. Challenge number one, which I'd like to flag for you today, is the challenge <coughs> from left-wing political extremism. Mao may be dead in China, but not in my country. <laughs> and actually, the, the Chinese economic policies followed after Deng Xiaoping have something to do with it. Because as it happens, Maoism in, in India got a great surge because of the Beijing Olympics. You, you want to know why? Well, the Beijing Olympics created a massive demand for, among other things, iron ore and bauxite. And this led to a kind of mining boom in central and eastern India, uh, in which to supply the Chinese uh, desire or greed or whatever you want for these raw materials, large numbers of tribal people were displaced from their lands, evicted from their homes, lost access to their livelihood, to their forests, to their waters, to their shrines, and so on, and went into the waiting hands of Maoist revolutionaries, who had already always been active in small pockets from the late 1960s, but in the last <coughs> six or eight years, have grown in significance and importance. Uh, estimates vary widely about the territories they control. There are more than 500 districts in India. According to one estimate issued uh, by the government of India, 200 ha are under Maoist influence. Now, this is clearly an overestimate, and it's arrived as, as follows. Every state of the Indian Union, the 28 states, every state of the Indian Union runs a fiscal deficit. Supposing there is one stray violent incident in a district and you apply to the Home Ministry in Delhi and officially get it declared Maoist affected, you get a subsidy of so many million dollars. 
So it's an overestimate, but as someone who has studied the problem, has actually traveled through the Maoist areas, I'd say something like 50 districts, about 8% of India's territory, is controlled at night by the Maoists. In an uncertain way, during the daytime, <coughs> by, uh, by the legitimate government, uh, but otherwise by the extremists uh, who launch daring attacks on, on banks, uh, on, on factories, who ex regularly extort money from contractors, from industrialists, who assassinate major politicians, police officers, and who are a major presence uh, in these uh, tribal districts of central and eastern India, and who hope to replicate in India what Mao replicated in China, to create a liberated zone in a certain part of India where they have complete physical, territorial, military control from where they can expand their influence and finally, at some unspecified date in the future, plant the red flag on the red fort in New Delhi. So that's challenge number one for left-wing political extremism. The second challenge comes from right-wing religious fundamentalism. This of course, is uh, in some ways a global phenomenon. You find in India today <coughs> a rise of fundamentalism in every major religion. Now, India is home to every major religion of the world. We have more Christians than Australia, though the Australians claim to be a Christian country. <laughs> uh, India was broken up in two in 1947 when the British left to create the Muslim homeland of Pakistan. Well, we have as many Muslims as Pakistan. We have more Sikhs, more Jains, more Parsis than any country in the world, and yet we are a dominantly Hindu country. And every, in every one of these religions, <coughs> liberal, plural, secular forces are on the defensive against the fundamentalists of that faith. It's true of Islam, it's true of Sikhism, it's even true of an obscure small sect like Jainism. And it's true, above all, of the Hindus who are the largest uh, population. Now, there have been kind of episodic cycles of uh, religious violence. Hindu fundamentalism rises, stabilizes, declines. At the moment, it is recessive. If the month of February is free of religious violence in India, the next month, it will be the first 10-year period since 1963 that this has happened. And that's a very big if. Uh, but if it happens, uh, we can say that they are temporarily recessive. But the threat, threat persists. Uh, the major opposition party, the Bharatiya Janta Party, uh, is controlled by uh, a secretive organization called the RSS, which is wedded to the idea of a Hindu theocratic state. The RSS, in turn, has on its right uh, a very close ties with really ruffians who have been known in the past, who go under the name of the Bajrangdal, who have been known in the past to regularly target Muslims, to burn their houses, to rape their women, to kill, kill them and so on. So the last 10 years have been relatively peaceful, but the threat of a right-wing religious fundamentalist assertion remains. And it's a competitive religious fundamentalism. So as was recently manifest by <coughs> uh, uh, the fact that Salman Rushdie could not travel to India to participate in the literary festival. There is also Islamic fundamentalism, Sikh fundamentalism, uh, uh, Christian fundamentalism, and above all, simply because Hindus are so large, uh, the most serious threat 
that of right-wing religious fundamentalism from the Hindus. Now, if you look at the history of the 20th century, this is a kind of common pattern. If you look at the history of interwar Europe, you find a democratic center challenged by left-wing extremism and right-wing extremism. It, it's also not unknown in Indian history. India became independent in August 1947. In January 1948, Mahatma Gandhi was murdered by a Hindu fanatic. A month after Mahatma Gandhi was murdered, the Communist Party of India met in secret conclave in Calcutta and under the orders of Joseph Stalin launched an armed insurrection against the Indian state. So at its birth, the Republic of India was pinched from the left by uh, Marxists acting under the orders of the Soviets and from the right by religious fundamentalism. But the center held. The center held because it was determined, capable, focused. Today, the center is corrupt and corroded. And there are many aspects to this. Uh, straightforward corruption, uh, taking money, large sums of money, billion dollar scams that have been reported in the newspapers to do with uh, the state's misuse of their uh, powers of eminent domain, uh, the underpricing of uh, airwaves and so on and so forth. But also in a more serious fundamental sense, Indian democracy has been corroded by the conversion of the political party into the family firm. This is especially true of the Congress party. And a great novel remains to be written about the culture of sycophancy in the Congress party. More than four, uh, well, I'll give you one concrete illustration. <coughs> Some years ago, I was in one of the most remote and most beautiful parts of India, the state of Arunachal Pradesh, which is in the Northeast and which abuts both Tibet and Burma. On that visit, I spoke at the Rajiv Gandhi University. After I spoke, I was taken for to see the Indira Gandhi State Museum. And following that, I went to see the Jawaharlal Nehru State Park. <laughs> An estimated 400 or more government schemes are named after. And this is instrumental. This is because <clears throat> a chief minister of an Indian province today knows that the surest and quickest way to Sonia Gandhi's heart is to name a new airport after Rajiv Gandhi. <laughs> uh, if you see this, uh, the advertisements that are released by Indian ministries on uh, Rajiv Gandhi's birthday, uh, you know the ministers that issue the largest advertisements are most insecure about their place in the Union Cabinet. But it's not just the Congress Party. I think this is uh, virtually every major party is now controlled by a family. The DMK, which was a great party of gender equality and social reform in South India, uh, is now controlled by a single family. The Akali Dal of the Sikhs, again a party of progressive social reform, which started by getting rid of corrupt priests in the Gurdwaras, is controlled by a single family. Uh, the British writer Patrick French has written a fascinating study of this in his book, India Portrait. He has a chapter on what he calls hereditary MPs. How in every single party you have to be the son, the nephew, the daughter, the widow of a politician to get into politics. And this is deeply damaging of democracy. I think for all the faults of Western democracy, uh, a character like Barack Obama emerging from nowhere, or even Angela Merkel, to take somebody else, you know, without any political patronage, these are things that are very hard, they're not impossible, but they're hard to do in India. 
So that's the third challenge, the corruption and corrosion of the democratic center. The fourth challenge is the decline of public institutions. The civil service, the police, the judiciary, and the universities. I was deeply embarrassed when uh, Mick started with uh, some remarks about ranking and so on. We won't even go into where Indian universities rank or do not rank. Uh, but there was a time when they were quite good. You know, I stand before you as someone who is entirely a product of Indian education. And I have never lacked for it. And I'm not unique or alone. Arguably, India's finest historian is a man called Sanjay Subramaniam, who was completely trained in India. Arguably, India's uh, finest sociologist is a woman called Veena Das, who was completely and entirely trained in India. And this kind of thing won't happen. Indian universities were once world class. I mean, those of you who know the names of M.N. Srinivas, uh, Andre Bete, the Subaltern Studies School, will know the kind of work that was produced by Indian universities. Likewise with the judiciary. Uh, <coughs> Some time ago, one of the most venerated advocates in the Supreme Court wrote a letter to the Chief Justice in which he said, I have practiced in the Supreme Court for 50 years. In this time, I have appeared before 16 Chief Justices of the Supreme Court. Eight of them were honest and eight of them were corrupt. And in the letter that I have given to you, sealed, I have listed which were corrupt and which were honest. And the Chief Justice didn't dare open the letter. As it happens, this current Chief Justice is, is completely squeaky clean and honest, and also a very capable man. So the judiciary, and of course, if this is the case with the Supreme Court, don't talk about the high courts and the lower courts. The police, who are often arbitrary and brutal in the way they treat uh, political prisoners, uh, you know, demonstrators, and so on. And the, you know, their horrific actions have been documented by uh, <coughs> many brave human rights groups. The civil services, which are also first class. The civil services really united India. One of the greatest challenges that the Republic of India faced at birth, apart from the left wing and the right wing fundamentalism, was that the British scuttled and left us with the problem of 500 princely states, many of which wanted to be independent. And then we had to, under the leadership of Sadar Patel, who was Home Minister, aided by a very able civil service, bring them into the Republic one by one. So India once had an outstanding civil service. There's still some exemplary civil service officers. I mean, I, I don't want to say it's unredeemed doom. There's still some outstanding university professors. There's still some upright and capable judges. Yet institutions as a whole are declining and sometimes under collapse. So that's challenge number four. Challenge number five is the growing gap between the rich and the poor. I mean, this is a product of economic liberalization, which has done many good things. It has uh, unleashed a surge of creativity, entrepreneurship, increase the size of the cake, which one needs to do in a poor country to bring it distributed. But it's also led to a spectacular gap between the rich and the poor, most visibly demonstrated <coughs> in a house recently built in the city of Bombay, which is 27 stories high and 400,000 feet in extent, and is occupied by a nuclear family the size of mine. And some of you in this audience have visited my house in Bangalore, and it's quite a comfortable house. Though it's not 400,000 square feet and 27 <laughs> stories. That's challenge number five. Challenge number six is the rapid pace of environmental degradation. India is an environmental basket case. If you look at uh, levels of air pollution, Delhi and Calcutta are among the most 
heavily polluted cities in the world. Most Indian cities traditionally were sited on rivers, Delhi on the Jamuna, uh, uh, Patla on the Ganga, Calcutta on the Hooghly and so on. These rivers are killed, they're dead. There's massive uh, uh, chemical contamination of aquifers on which uh, peasants depend, deforestation, decline of biodiversity and so on. Challenge number seven is the apathy of the media. There's still areas in which the media does good work with regard to corruption, for example. But when it comes to focusing on income inequality and the problems the disadvantages dispossessed, when it comes to environmental issues, the media, once very vigilant and active, has now become a captive of corporate advertisers. The Indian environmental movement was nurtured by some very brave environmental journalists, one of whom cut his teeth actually in this city, working with uh, the International Institute for Environment and Development, a man called Anil Agarwal, who was a great pioneering environmentalist and spawned a whole generation of pioneering environmental journalists and had a massive impact on the Indian media in the 80s and 90s, so that every Indian newspaper in the 80s had an environmental journalist. In the last decade, they've either been laid out, laid off, or redesignated as stock market reporters. So and there is great pressure on journalists not to write. I, uh, I think, I, because I'm an independent columnist, and I write for a newspaper whose proprietor lets me say what I want, the Telegraph of Calcutta, three years ago, I wrote about the house being built in Bombay. No one followed it up. Someone should have gone, explored it, and so on. Uh, there's still some brave writers. Uh, one who comes to mind is the outstanding journalist P. Saina of the Hindu, who focuses on rural poverty, but they're rare. The media is not doing its job when it comes to reporting on income inequality and environmental degradation. Challenge number eight is to do with political fragmentation. What you find in India today is that the central government is always composed of multi-party coalitions. Sometimes 16, sometimes 19, sometimes 21, and I know the English are rather worried about a two-party coalition. <laughs> they should be quite comfortable. And I think they are quite comfortable, and they should really look uh, east and see how we manage or mismanage. Uh, so some of this is actually a reflection of the diversity of Indian democracy. It's, you know, it's one of those uh, political occurrences that are paradoxical, that are a product of the deepening of democracy. It's because India is too large, too capacious, to diverse, to be represented by one or two parties, you have, that you have, the out, you have this emergence of regional parties uh, based on particular identities. But when you aggregate it onto a central level, you find that you have 21 parties running a coalition and you can't have a, a sustained policy to reform our universities, to reform the police. Uh, of course, it also leads to much greater corruption because as a price of joining the government, the smaller parties always extract or try and extract the most profitable ministries. Challenge number nine <coughs> are the unreconciled borderlines. There are 28 states in the Republic of India. The citizens of 25 are largely, largely or totally reconciled with being part of India, despite the diversity and so on. And it's such an ex extraordinary achievement, given the fact that we're only 60 years old as a political unit, that such a large and complex country has not undergone a civil war. I mean, the American, look at what the Americans un underwent 90 years after their independence. And, you know, the British are now going to face problems with Scotland. Now, we have 28, and many of them have their own languages, their own cultures, their own, their own ecologies, and so on. But in three of these, there are problems. And they all happen to be border states. There's Kashmir, bordering Pakistan, 
Manipur bordering Burma and Nagaland bordering also <coughs> Burma and, and China. So you have three states in which arguably if a plebiscite was held, arguably a majority of the population would vote for secession from India. And the last problem is our unstable neighborhood. Some months ago, uh, in my quest of being a global ci world citizen, I was speaking at the University of Toronto. And there the Canadians were very nervous about their, you know, their ugly neighbor to, uh, to the south. And I said, you are in actually a very safe neighborhood. I mean, the Americans are not going to invade you. The Arctic is cold, but that's all. Come to India and think of Pakistan, Bangladesh, China, and so on. And we'll tell you what an unstable neighborhood is. So here are 10 challenges faced by the Republic of India. And I'll go over them again. <coughs> the challenge from left-wing political extremism, the challenge from right-wing religious extremism, the corruption and corrosion of the democratic center, the decline of public institutions, the growing gap between the rich and the poor, the rapid pace of environmental degradation, the apathy of the media, <coughs> the political fragmentation and the policy incoherence it gives rise to, the unreconciled borderlines and the unstable neighborhood. Ten reasons why India will not be a superpower. But should it even entertain that ambition? This is the question as I come to the conclusion of my talk. India will not be a superpower. That is the judgment of a historian. And I should explain it as follows. When, broadly speaking, in a simplified form, I'll explain it as follows. In the 50s and 60s, when the Indian experiment with national unity and democracy despite poverty was widely written off by Western observers, those skeptics and cynics, cynics underestimated the capacity of the Indian political class. Today, those who think India is going to be a superpower overestimate the capacity of the Indian political class. In an essay in the latest issue of Prospect, I identify six kinds of political leaders who are distinguished by weakness, sectarianism, belonging to a particular family, xenophobia, etc., etc. Uh, so though that's an objective analysis of a historian, that India is not going to be a superpower. But I'm now going to give you the desires or hopes of a citizen. India should not even entertain that ambition. Now, before I uh, explain why, a caveat. I'm not an isolationist or a pacifist. I believe <coughs> that India needs a strong and robust army, navy and air force to protect its borders and its peoples. And among all the big large nations of the world, India may be unique in never having invaded another country. And that's a, it also, that's something we should, uh, I mean, not long ago, uh, if I may say so, I was uh, you know, in a talk at the LSE where there was someone uh, from the British Diplomatic Service who wondered what, what we were doing in Afghanistan and said to, you should, we should get out of Afghanistan and let, let the Pakistanis so that there'd be peace in the region. And I said, do you realize what you are doing in Afghanistan? And who you have sent and who we have sent? We have sent doctors, engineers, musicians. Because of India, the traditional Hindustani classical music is still alive. It may go when the Taliban comes. So the aspects of Indian foreign policy actually in the past and occasionally in the present. So certainly what is known as Gloucester soft power, of course, I think uh, India played an honorable role in the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. When Oliver Tambo 
had to was told by his colleagues that he must go and canvass and campaign in the west and he went while they were in jail he went out he fled into exile he traveled across the world on an indian passport <coughs> now i don't think uh, you know the british or the americans or even the russians gave him, would give him a passport so i think the so i am not an isolationist i am not a pacifist we need to protect our borders we need a strong army we need to play a proper role in international organizations as well india needs to be a permanent member of a reconstituted security council preferably at the expense of great britain <laughs> now i don't say this merely in jest if you want a reconstituted security council which you do because of the changing world the two countries that cannot or should not be there are great britain and france and the countries that could or should be there are brazil south africa india possibly japan and in my view norway because norway i talk about india not invading norway has a most the most honorable record in international affairs if you look at the giving of aid and the unceasing <laughs> efforts to bring about conflict resolution and if it, if they failed in sri lanka and israel is because of the sri lankans and israelis not because of norwegians <laughs> a, a country that has at, before i go further i should immediately say because there norwegians in front row this is got nothing to do with him yeah <laughs> this was a suggestion of my sons who has never met old ari westart and i completely accepted and he explained why he said look these are the reasons and then he said uh, he said uh, look at a country which has the a lovely ambition a tidy country of 2 3 million people you know it's not even one quarter of my hometown bangalore and it says we got to institute a nobel peace prize so i think well forget norway for the moment but certainly britain and france have no place in a maybe as occasional temporary members fighting elections every time <laughs> that's fine but so certainly i believe uh, as part of um, uh, my thinking as an internationalist as an indian internationalist there must be a reconstituted security council in which japan india brazil and south africa four great democracies from and large complex democracies from different parts of the world uh, i think need a honorable place right? brazil and south africa uh, you know two of the few countries that gave up the nuclear prog uh, program voluntarily for example so uh, so i'm not an isolationist i'm not a pacifist but the ambition to be a superpower involves more than asking for membership of the un security council it involves more than reviving the tradition great tradition of hindustani classical music in afghanistan uh, or allowing afghan students to study in our best engineering colleges the aspiration to be a superpower involves uh, or calls into being the desire and the capability to assert one's will other other against other nations uh, in the words uh, often used by uh, british uh foreign ministers past present and regrettably future to punch above your weight or to punch twice your weight or whatever you know it involves the will the the capacity to assert one's will against other nations or in places far away from one's own country this ambition in my view is wrong in itself but it also detracts from the more urgent task of healing the wounds within the fissures and fault lines within that still bedevil india's search for unity and democracy to make india a just and democratic society i think the political class the business class uh newspaper editors sections of the middle class need to refocus away from this 
superpower fantasy towards making India a more plural and democratic society. And of course, as a historian, they're cautionary examples. Had the Soviets not invaded Afghanistan, who knows? Had the Americans not had that misadventure in Iraq, right? they had some reason to go into Afghanistan, but no reason to go into Iraq. You know, there are economic and social problems that they are facing now. You know, so I think they are cautionary examples too, uh, in, in an objective sense. But above all, it's my view that international affairs is not a hundred meter race where someone comes first, someone comes second, and we constantly judge each other, uh, constantly judge ourselves against some other country. You know, if you look at, and this is what I talked about, the male, uh, the male aspect of it. It's a macho thing, the superpower ambition, which also often reflects deep male insecurity and inferiority. <laughs> the Pakistanis I in, in feel have an inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis India. India has a vis-a-vis -vis, has an inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis China. China has a vis inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis the United States and so on. But we should judge ourselves against our own standards. And this is the significance of today, Republic Day, 26th of January, 1950, when in a moving speech made by B.R. Ambedkar, we committed ourselves not just to political democracy. Ambedkar said, with the coming of this constitution, we will have one person, one vote. But how long will we continue to deny the conditions of social and economic inequality? When will we have one person, one value? The great jurist Nani Palkiwala, who died some years ago, once said in a moment of despair, he said, India is a third-class democracy with a first-class constitution. <laughs> now, I'd probably say second-class. But still, I think the Republic of India, its political, intellectual, scholarly leadership, needs to reconcile the second-class and the first-class before even thinking of taking on the world. Thank you. After, Ram, after Ram's 10 factors, I can now tell you the Indian Stock Exchange has just collapsed. <laughs> and Britain has cut off diplomatic relationship <laughs> with ideas. Thank you, Ram, for that. Uh, sitting on the fence, as always and as ever. Wonderful stuff. I'm sure we're going to get lots and lots of uh, reactions to your 10 points and many, many other points made. I will just begin with a very simple question. Are there any superpowers left in the world? And you also said, by the way, the US, you said everybody else has an inferiority complex. Would it be true to say the United States has an inferiority complex towards the United Kingdom still? <laughs> well, that's a brilliant question, but the, the brilliant question, the answer would be the United States has an inferiority complex. That is Mitt Romney and Barack Obama are both. Whoa. I mean, going by Obama's last speech. Mitt Romney and Barack Obama both have an inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis the real or imagined achievements of their predecessors right, okay. and the domination they were believed to have exercised over other parts right, of the world. Okay. Well, my the America will always be first. That's, that's Is that's it a superpower, though, in your definition of one, <laughs> do you think? Well, it, see, both China and the U.S., I think, have the ambition or the aspiration to assert themselves military elsewhere. And I think Britain also. I think Britain is in Afghanistan and Iraq because of a nostalgia for a superpower past. So in that sense, even if they 
even if they aren't one objectively, I think they're one in ambition and desire. Okay, very diplomatic. <laughs> Thank you for Baroness that. Baroness Faulkner. Thank you for that fantastic uh, lecture. Um, talking about why democracy succeeds in India, yeah. can you explain why it fails in Pakistan? <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, and secondly, yeah. do you think that the fact of democracy in India precludes peace with Pakistan? Precludes peace in Pakistan? With Pakistan. Thanks, Kishore. I'll take any more over here. Anybody over here? A gentleman up there? Just put his hand up. And then if you just walk up the aisle to that lady up there, maybe. A, yeah. Gentleman over here. Please, sir. Um, I think possibly there are three things that make a superpower. Um, the first would be possibly that you are a creditor nation. Um, a creditor nation. That, that you can lend money, that you're rich enough to, yeah. to lend other countries money. Um, the second would be that your culture is universally accepted around the world. Yeah. And the third would possibly be uh, um, that you have a, a world-leading military. Yeah. And I'll add a fourth, that you have an infrastructure that, that can react to, to what's happening in the world. Yeah. Um, if current projections carry on, of course they may not, it looks like India will become rich enough to be a creditor nation, will have one of the world's great militaries, and if you look at the growth of Bollywood, the idea of karma, it already is universally accepted. So I, I'm quite surprised. So on current projections, it does look like India will become a superpower on those three parameters. Okay. Why don't we just take those two questions? One yeah. on Pakistan from Kishore. I'll answer the second very quickly. Okay. You see, uh, as a historian, I distrust projections. Through the 50s and 60s, we were told we will balkanize, we'll come under military rule, there'll be sectarian violence and so on. So I distrust projections, especially when they're based on numbers. Oh. I was trained in economics, so I distrust numbers. <laughs> and as someone who understands society, politics, culture, I think... Uh, and obviously, I'd say, the, I don't think we, at all we have a robust military. I don't think we're going to be a predator nation. I think, uh, of course, we uh, produce uh, the greatest musicians in the world, bar none. No longer the greatest cricketers, regrettably, but forget that. <laughs> uh, and of course, our movies are watched everywhere. Uh, our writers, as was famously said about, uh, uh, you know, Salman Rusty and every, all the others, I mean, they renewed the English language. I mean, from... Uh, once upon a time, I mean, the, the English novel had reached a stage where it was all about adultery in Hampstead, right? <laughs> Till Rusty and Amitav Ghosh and others came along. So, but I don't think, you know, so I don't, I don't think that those projections are accurate. And in any case, even, even if they are, I distrust projections as a historian and a skeptic because too often uh, they're being proved wrong. And I know that if I was to become an astrologer, it'd be a much more profitable pro profession in my country. <laughs> but I'd be wrong most of the time. <laughs> On uh, Pakistan and India, you know, you asked two very profound and uh, interesting questions, and you know, one could spend a whole uh, session on this, on why uh, there is no nurturing of democratic traditions in Pakistan. Tariq Ali, uh, whom I don't always agree with, in one of his books talks about this. And it's to do with the fact that the Congress party, nurtured by Gandhi and others from the 20s, was inclusive. It, was, you know, it, had, it had women, it had low caste, it had people of different languages. Whereas Jinnah relied for his success, particularly in the Punjab, on on basically aristocrats and you know large landholders who, are, who still dominate Pakistan. There's a second reason, which is to do with the military domination, which is to do with the fact that the Punjab was involved, uh, Punjabi Muslims were involved in the Second World War and so on. Uh, there's a third reason, which is just bad luck. I mean, Jinnah died in uh, a year after. Nehru uh, lived 17 years later. Of course, Nehru was totally and fully committed to democracy. Nehru, uh, his commitment to universal adult franchise was mocked by the communists 
was mocked by the RSS and the BJP right wing and also by the middle class who called it the biggest gamble in history. And you know, for those of you who love to hate Nehru, you know, please understand this. I mean, if Nehru had not lived 17 years, we may be in Pakistan or worse. So I think that's various reasons, historical, personal. On does democracy preclude peace with Pakistan? You know, sometimes on both sides. <coughs> uh, I think what you have is, unfortunately, uh, it need not necessarily. Uh, but in India today, the bipart you'll have to you, you'll have to believe it. The bipartisan uh, uh, the partisanship, the poisonous bitterness between the Congress Party and the BJP is even worse than that between the Republicans and the Democrats. So certainly this kind of thing precludes peace. I mean, I think uh, you know. Uh, I've regularly uh, argued for a bipartisan consensus, at least on Kashmir. But it can't happen, because once you're in opposition, you want to show you're more nationalistic or jingoistic than the other person. Likewise, in Pakistan, you know, some Indians feel that if he's a dictator, we can strike a deal with him. I don't, that's not a reason to promote uh, generals in Pakistan. I mean, the Americans tried it all over the world, thinking they, they would promote generals and get along well with them. Uh, which is why they always like Pakistan more than us, because, you know, the State Department had to talk to elected uh, politicians, not to generals. So it's a complicated question, but I think I have sim Pakistan has had a lot of bad luck. Uh, I still think that there's a fundamental difference between the founding party, the Congress party, and their founding party, also between Nehru and Jinnah, but Pakistan has had, I feel, you know, having to deal with Afghan refugees. It was, it was a war thrust on them by the Soviets, and then a second war thrust on them by the Americans. And if you look at the entire uh, transformation of, for, the, for, for, for the worse of Pakistani society, it's to do with this, that completely uh, you know, accidental uh, bad luck of being a frontline state in the Cold War. There's a lady here, and uh, I'll take another question. Yeah, gentleman here, Stuart. Yeah, in the middle here. I don't mind. What are you doing? Are you, are you, you're autonomous. Watch my finger. There's a guy up there with a white, sh white shirt on. Yeah, please. Thanks. Great. The lady here and then the, the guy in the white. Yeah, please. Lady first. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you for your lecture. You said that India should aspire to, be, to get the permanent seat in the Security Council. But doesn't that go against looking within? Does the average citizen in India, keeping apart the urban educated elite, actually care whether India should take a place in the Security Council. How does this affect their lives? Thank you. Right, thanks very much. So the gentleman here in white, please. Um, yeah. Maybe sort of along the same lines. Uh, we see that actually a lot of the middle class, upper middle class in India is just generally apathetic about the political elite and they just sort of say, you know, all these politicians are bad people or whatever. And given that the only real movement we got by the middle class was Anna Hazare and some, a lot of people have problems with the way in which he went about that. What do you think is the best way to get people caring about stuff like this. Okay, Thanks. right. Apathy and stuff, Security Council. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, uh, I, I talked about the other countries too. You see, we live in a complex interdependent world. We need an international system. Better the U UN than the CIA. All right. <laughs> Or, or oil barons in Texas or whatever, whoever else decides global policy. All right. So I think we need a stronger, more robust UN. And in that, it needs to be more diverse and representative. And this is a small part of it. I mean, I wouldn't write, spend uh, the next five years campaigning for it. But I was just talk, I was to explain why, while saying we must focus within, one must not completely lose sight of the larger perspective. You know, I'm not talking about isolationism of the kind, uh, you know, preached by Ron Paul or by the Burmese generals uh, till last year. Uh, so it's question of uh, that. Or, um, you know, this is a real problem you've set your finger on. 
there are serious difficulties with Indian political leadership today. Uh, and some of the reason for the middle class scorn and skepticism is justified. But they are, they are the odd capable leaders. Uh, <clears throat> and I should mention, you know, at least one of them. Because he, uh, this person is not normally the discussion. There are four or five very influential charismatic chief ministers in India. And each Indian state, as uh, you know, is often much larger than a European country, 100, 200 million people. And I would say the Indian politician I most admire, but the Indian politician I least dislike, at least, uh, is a man called Nitish Kumar in Bihar, who, unlike, un unlike Rahul Gandhi, uh, was not born into a political family. Unlike uh, Narendra Modi of Gujarat, does not hate Muslims. Unlike Mayawati of Uttar Pradesh, does not build statues for himself. Uh, <laughs> who has focused on education, health, infrastructure. Bihar is unglamorous, you know, so, uh, but, you know, he, he's a very impressive man. If you talk to the focus, if, if you talk to people around him, also, I talked about the depoliticization of bureaucracy, the police. He's tried to do that. Bihar is notorious for his lawlessness is not safe because you don't have, uh, you know, legislators appointing policemen and so on. So I think this other, uh, in the Far Eastern, Bihar I have some personal experience of. A state I do not have much personal experience of, and so it's mostly a second hand is Tripura in the, uh, in, in the northeast, and it has a very capable chief minister called, from all accounts, people I respect tell me, called Manik Sarkar, who's very low-key steady uh, from, from the Communist Party of India, Marxist. So they are, you know, and I think India, one of the problems with middle-class Indians is that they want one redeemer. They want a new Mahatma Gandhi. And they think if this uh, fasting social worker called Anna Hazare puts a photo of Gandhi behind him, he becomes a new Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> right. Or the Congress Party will tell you Rahul Gandhi is Jawaharlal Nehru's integrity, plus Albert Einstein's brains, right? <laughs> now, those who admire Narendra Modi will tell you he's, uh, you know, Hitler, uh, you know, he will, uh, he's Germany, he's Germany's industrial might uh, and racial pride minus the concentration camps, right? Uh, which is not, he's all, they are from concentration camps already in, in Gujarat, but that's a separate question. Now, the point is, we want one national redeemer. I think in a country of 28 states, if we have 10 Nitish Kumars, we'd be much better off. So it's not altogether hopeless, yeah. Okay, I'll take some more people, put their hands up, and I'll pick you up. Uh, the lady in red up there on the aisle, and somebody up here? Somebody up there? Another lady there, just on the left. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, one and then two, please. All right. My question is, in fact, about is there a way that we can change the way we choose the, our leader? There was a recent article by Dr. Tharoor saying that maybe it's time to choose a president for India, yeah. wherein we don't have a Manmohan yeah. Singh Ji sitting just because yeah. Congress is up there. Yeah. yeah, okay, take the one on the choice of leadership. Yeah, and lady here, please. You have given us 10 reasons why India will not become a superpower. Uh, despite it, I think uh, Indians have made their mark all over the globe. Uh, could you give us reasons how India can become a superpower? <laughs> well, you'll have to ask someone else. I'm not interested in that. Okay, I'll so, but I'll, ask, I'll let me ask you a question. Yeah, I'll tell you that gentleman there is going to stand up. Yeah. And there's somebody else over here. Hi there. There's a lady there. Yeah, so we we'll take uh, Thanks for yes, your sir. nice lecture. Um, my question okay. is, um, I think Wall is going, uh, going to see or is seeing a new space race in terms of going to moon, India and, uh, led by India and China. So do you think that would play an um, important role like it did in the past? Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a moon question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, lady here. Yeah. So, yes, please. Hi. Um, I just have a question in general. Like, isn't fractionism the defining characteristic? Like, you look at Indian diaspora. Is it? I mean, fractionism in every part of, like, we don't really think of India, right? We think yeah. of states. And even Indian diaspora is not, it, it, could, it will have Bollywood events going on as Indian culture. 
but what what do we really do as a diaspora to push forward India's you know role in UN or something? Yeah. So I mean, yeah. how do we bring about that change? I don't see that happening. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's yeah. just a culture. Right. I mean, I, very self-focused yeah. and not... Really no, I, I, I mean, I, I think diasporic people are not always representative. I'd say, you know, uh, despite my talk was more about superpower ambitions. But if I was to judge Indian democracy in the last 60, 65 years, you know, it is, I mean, it's true, I come to the political, quest of political leaders. Actually, the striking achievements of India, and I mentioned it briefly in my talk, is how 60 years after independence, 25 out of 20 states, 28 states are completely happy with the part of India. It's not true. I mean, you have multiple identities. What India has proved is you can be, uh, you know, Velala and Tamil and Indian. Though the Tamils wanted independence. Uh, the Mizoram Mizor wanted independence. The Pakistan, the, uh, the Khalistanis wanted independence. So it's actually a spectacular achievement. And if you travel around India, and I could give you many examples of this. You know, I, uh, we are now meeting on Republic Day. I once, uh, you know, if, uh, Independence Day, I was once traveling in the countryside. And you see, uh, um, in a remote part of South India, I saw children dressing up for a school play. One was playing Ambedkar. One was playing, who was a great low caste leader, one was playing Gandhi, and the other was playing the great scientist Visheshwaraya. And none of these three were from that state. So it's actually, and you, and you, so actually that is, if you look at, of course we retain our diversities. I think India, on that question, on uh, allowing uh, uh, plural identities, anticipates the European Union by 50 years. And it may outlast the European Union also by 50 years. That's a, that's a, so I think on that, on actually, historically, in 60 years, we've cultivated quite a strong sense and without privileging a single religion or language or an enemy. That, that, that is coming quite striking. Or the political class, you know, I think, uh, again, uh, there are some very uh, heartening things about Indian democracy. One is uh, the surge in civil society, which is not there in Nehru's time, because we thought Nehru and Patel and Ambedkar will solve everything. So the question is the balance. A democracy needs a functioning civil society, a capable political class, and a uh, dynamic entrepreneurial class. And I think at the moment of these three stools, what is weakest in India is the political class. Now, how do you change them? Now again, you know, these are these utopian ideas, elect a president. That won't work. They are actually, and uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of flamboyant gesture by a flamboyant politician writer who happens to be a friend of mine, but uh, it's, it's, it's worthless. Uh, there are people working on this. Uh, there is a group, and I urge you to visit them, visit their website. There's a group called the Association for Democratic Reforms, which has done some outstanding work on what you need to reform the democratic system. It's because of a case they filed in the Supreme Court, and now, for the first time, candidates have to declare their assets in the criminal records. And they've outlined a series of other reforms. For example, they've said, uh, you must have, st uh, political parties must have transparent accounting procedures like firms. Every year, accounts that people can scrutinize it. You must have state funding of elections. You must have a system in which you have, because we are on the first-past-the-post system, we have many part candidates in one constituency. You must have a system in which an electronic voting can allow this. A candidate is elected, shall we say, from Bangalore South constituency, only when he or she has got 50% plus one vote. So in every constituency, you have a runoff on the French presidential model, and that can be done. So they, I urge you, those of you who are interested in reforming the election system, because you can't get a presidential system. For that, you need a new constituent assembly that will meet for five years. So it can't happen. But you can reform the electoral system through focus, financial, and legal means. And I think the Association of Democratic Reforms, whose website I urge you to visit, shows you some ways. Okay, I've got a gentleman here. And there's a, there's a lady here, just uh, on, on the aisle, on the aisle, yeah. Please, yeah. 
Well, it, it is most upsetting that uh, when you talked about the restructuring of uh, the Security Council, uh, you should mention Norway. Um, and, 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 so and, I wanted and, to raise that and, question. And, and, not, and not Australia now. <laughs> uh, is, is, this, is this because the Indian cricket team is getting a threshold? <laughs> That's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> but, but more seriously though, I mean, how... That was a very serious <laughs> point. Yeah. And even more serious than that, how is it India has not been able to have a good sport in which it predominates? Is this an 11th reason why it will not become a superpower? You know? Okay, uh, the lady here please. Um, good evening, sir. Um, among all the 10 reasons uh, which you have stated, yeah. um, um, why India cannot become or will not become a superpower? Um, there is no mention of, like about the financial or the economic uh, stability in India, which is actually one of the cause causes why Indian growth is now actually uh, decreasing. And uh, among, among amidst the global crisis, uh, because India is relatively a closed economy, uh, it is one of the major causes is that the internal financial stability is at uh, something wrong with it. So uh, in that, if it is not a, a reason reason uh, mentioned in your top 10 reasons, so, in, uh, so do you think that India can at least become an economic superpower or economic global, uh, global leader? Uh, you. If you could pass the, uh, to the lady in front, I think, yeah? The lady there, yeah? Please. Your best case scenario is to have uh, 10 Nitish Kumar type leaders in the country and if that would happen then India is definitely a superpower because the growth rates that we are talking about is actually a sum total of uh, entrepreneurial <coughs> political leadership in the states and not really a national phenomena so to say and there are virgin lands uh, in large parts of northern parts of the country where public expenditures have not uh, reached the kind of uh, levels that reached under Nitish Kumar the 38% type growth rates so your best case scenario is actually a case to make India a superpower and not the reverse okay let's take those ones yeah. uh, I'm happy to drop Norway <laughs> All right, but I won't consider you Australia. I will consider you something uh, 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 which is actually more uh, plausible, which is Indonesia. So I, I think there is a case for various countries, and Indonesia is extraordinary again a, new, a great extraordinary experiment of uh, of democracy, multiculturalism, and so on. And who would have thought India, Indonesia would have come out of that period of corruption and gen, uh, military rule? These questions about growth rates, economics, and so on, uh, they both linked. Uh, it's true, uh, and I should admit it straight away, that economics is not my strong suit. But having said that, don't get seduced by numbers and aggregate growth rates. You know, the question about are we, uh, you know, our growth is in the services sector and we are a labor Cerberus economy. With this fantasy about the demographic dividend, it will be a demographic disaster. The violence in India today is caused by young men who are educated and can't get jobs. When the great film star Rajkumar died in my hometown of Bangalore, the northern and western parts of the city which are depressed saw young men out in the streets. And as one sage commentator co told me, he said, some of them are grieving Rajkumar. Some of them are using that uh, occasion to say, why can't we get jobs in Infosys? Which is not, because the growth is in the south and the eastern city. So I think the deep, and if you look at the violence of the Naxalites, of the Hindu fundamentalists, of the Islamic jihadists, of the chauvinists of the Raj Thakare kind, they are all young. So they're highly, I don't, that's, so I think growth rates, you know, uh, as Aldous Huxley said about the Taj Mahal, marble conceals a multitude of sins. 
and growth rates concede even more sales than the than, than that marvel. So I think that, you know India is a young emer experiment. It's an extraordinary daring experiment. Actually, uh, the Soviet Union was a similar experiment because if you look at the size, the diversity, the complexity, and they didn't attend to that. And I think we have to be much more attentive. So even if you have 10 Nitish Kumars, we may be a second-class democracy, uh, and that's worthwhile. I mean, I, there's no perfect. The only perfect democracy in the world is the Republic of North Korea, right? Uh, by definition. So I think. So I think there are real issues here. So I think forget about the superpartum. You know, I think I think Gandhi is valuable here because I think. The message of someone like Gandhi, and that's where he differs from all economists, is it's not maximization of prosperity or happiness. It is minimization of suffering. And there's far too much of that in India. And, and, and people like Nitish Kumar are attending to it, which is why uh, he's, uh, you know, it's education, health, infrastructure. It is not the kind of megalomania you see in other parts of India. OK, I'm going to take two or three more questions. And there's a gentleman over here. Is anybody else? Up? And there's a gentleman on the left over there. Yeah, and then we'll go to the chat with the white shirt on. Okay, so that'll give us three. It might be the end. Yes, sir. Please. You describe this superpower temptation as being a kind of distraction from the internal problems that India should focus on. So, in other words, uh, there's a kind of an opposition between this sort of internal focus and 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 a sort of a more um, expansive kind of international role for India. But is it not possible that actually, in order to solve some of these ten challenges that you've that you've outlined? Um, I'm thinking particularly of the economic challenges and the environmental challenges that um, precisely in order to overcome these challenges, India will have to become something like a superpower um, and in your terms to impose its will on other, uh, on other powers, whether it's China or the US. Okay. Uh, uh, there was another one. Yeah. Sir, though I do agree that uh, India should not aspire to be a superpower uh, just like, you know, say America or UK was. But do you think in the context of globalization and uh, extensive interdependency and uh, decline in prominence of uh, state in the uh, international relations, there could be a new kind of superpower which is more non-governmental, uh, epistemic and uh, civil society based? And could India, because of its uh, vibrant, uh, vibrant democracy and higher uh, standards of liberty than the rest of the world, could qualify as a superpower of that kind in the 21st century. Okay, and there's a gentleman there in a white shirt. Okay. Um, you said one of. Then I'll try. Yep. You said uh, one of the problems, one of the ten problems, was the quality of political leadership. Um, as in, did you ever consider politics as a career? And slightly more seriously, um, like, what do you think can be done to make politics as a career more attractive to younger people? <laughs> you never tried to become a politician. <laughs> You're far too indiscreet. <laughs> Wonderfully non-diplomatic. Don't become one. <laughs> but answer the questions. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, of course, one needs economic growth. And the, uh, but what kinds, to how to generate jobs, how to overcome these challenges. There could also be a tension between a single-minded focus on 9% growth and democracy. And the mining boom in Central India is a very good example of this, uh, uh, where to counter the Maoists, the state governments of several states have set up armed militias to counter them and have led unspeakable human rights violations. And this is something I've studied, even a petition on the Supreme Court. And the major Delhi newspapers will not write about this because nothing must interfere with 9% growth. So actually, our democratic traditions are threatened by some of these internally. Forget out. And they're all kind of, Kashmir would be another example. You know, we should really focus on healing that or Manipur, uh, where there are terrible issues involved. So I think there is, there is a trade off sometimes. And I think Indian democracy. 
I mean, India remains, as I've always said, despite all that, India remains the most interesting country in the world. I would never want to live anywhere else but India. Uh, India is also uh, pretty democratic, as uh, Mick uh, commented on how indiscreet I am. You know, I, I say the same things in India. So uh, all that is true, but there is, in terms of citizenship, I mean, in Ambedkar's talking about one person, one value. These are things that, uh, and political corruption, uh, which brings to the question of how do you get better people into politics. I think the political, the, tra the transformation of the political party into a family firm is deeply disturbing. Uh, Rahul Gandhi has made some half-hearted attempts uh, to change that, but they're really half-hearted. Uh, uh, civil society is one way. Uh, I think the reforms per, uh, uh, <coughs> advocated by the uh, Association of Democratic Reforms, I mean, it be a patient, hard struggle. You know, what one needs is, you, it can't be done by one person. Uh, it can't be done by one miraculous redeeming figure. It will be patient hard work over a very long time. And there are some people who are doing it. I mean, there are still some outstanding people in government, uh, including in our, in our union government. So, uh, but what was focus on? The point is this, that, as I said, <coughs> the, going back to why I'm not a prophet, everyone who predicted India would go down the tube, and that was universal. And there were many Australians too, by the way, who said that. Uh, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald wrote in 1965 that a military dictatorship is imminent when Nehru died, uh, underestimated the capability of the Indian political leadership, both its intelligence and its integrity. Today, all this, including the diasporic, they think, you know, why not? In, I, I just I empathize with why people living outside India want India to be known. You know, why they don't want other China or anyone else to be. But I think there are real questions here about institutions. It's not just political leadership. It's about the functioning of law courts, of the police, of the bureaucracy, of universities. And, and of hospitals, I haven't talked at all about what is arguably India's uh, you know, uh, greatest challenge, much more the education, it is health, the collapsing system of public health, uh, which was the great thing, since I've said nasty things about Britain, one of the great things about uh, this country. Uh, 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 it, it, so uh, I think these are questions of institutional reform uh, mm -hmm. that one has to address that are very complex and take a lot of, and uh, which the superpower ambition, in my view, detracts from. I am going to call it to an end. There are about 100 hands that have gone up around the hall, but I'm afraid you'll have to be uh, disappointed. I'm very sorry, but time, as they say, has uh, run out. Uh, some announcements, if I might, before I move a vote of thanks to our wonderful speaker for this evening. Firstly, uh, the latest book by uh, Dr. Ramachandra Guha is on sale at the back at £20, and he will be doing a signing uh, at the back uh, after the lecture, if I could just finish. Uh, secondly, uh, we in Ideas are bringing out a report. It is, of course, a fundamental rebuttal <laughs> to the lecture. It isn't really. It's actually called India the Next Superpower. <laughs> However, it does have a very, very large question mark. <laughs> So whether you want to stress the next or the, the question mark, I'll leave up to you. And that will be on sale from the beginning of March. Uh, thirdly, please look out for the fourth Guha lecture. We're going to call them the Guha lectures, I think, as well as the, the Roman. You've, you've, you've such a strong imprint on this. Coming up soon on cricket. Um, I'm asking Tendulkar, the greatest batsman who's ever lived, to chair it, but I don't think I can get him. So you may have to put up with me one of the worst English batsmen that this country has ever produced. I was quite good at wicketkeeper though. And only people who understand cricket will understand what I've just said. 
Ram again has done everything we hoped for. He has been entertaining in the best possible sense, informative, provocative, critical, and in some fundamental sense, brave. Not many people will say the kinds of things here, either here or in your own country, about your own country. It takes a lot of guts. Well done, Ram Guha.